Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we continue our study of Article 10 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the affirmative statements where we get that wonderful phrase, we believe, teach, and confess with regard to the teaching on church practices, which are called adiaphora or matters of indifference. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Kurt Cochran. He is the pastor of Faith Lutheran in Tucson, Arizona. Pastor Cochran, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. It is definitely great to have you on. Now, to get us started off here, I asked this on the first episode with Pastor Herkamp last week as we began this article. And I guess I'm going to ask it of each pastor as we go through this article, and maybe that'll even reveal something for us. I'm not sure. We'll find out. But we use the word adiaphora, which in the Concordia Reader's Edition that we use defines that as matters of indifference with regard to church practices. But what is it for you as pastor? What is it that we mean by the word adiaphora when we use it here? Excellent. Yeah, it's a really old word for one. It goes all the way back into ancient Greece where things were not quite right or not quite good, not quite bad. But as it's gone forward in the church through time, in the church we really use it to mean church practices or ceremonies which are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. And those things that are traditions of man rather than commands of God. Although being a tradition of man, it doesn't make it kind of in and of itself wrong or bad. We'll kind of go back to this in a bit. But with regards to especially the header in the Book of Concord translation from CPH that we're using here, church practices which are called adiaphora or matters of indifference. There's actually a bit of a translation problem to English because just to ask you here, what is the problem with the word indifferent? Well, that it would convey to me that it's unimportant. Exactly. Yeah, that's the the Google synonym that came up is unimportant. Well, if we have church practices that are unimportant, then they can be simply added or discarded at will. But with this matters of indifference, the phrase in the German edition of the header here is Mitteldingen net, which is literally middle things. So not matters of indifference, but middle things, things that are not commanded nor forbidden, but in the, the middle between the two. So adiaphora doesn't really refer to church customs that don't matter or are unimportant. Um, just to use an example here, that whether the thermostat of the worship space is set to 71 or 72 degrees, that if you ever have a fight in the church over that, you'll eventually find many people who say, it doesn't matter, just pick one. But So that's an unimportant, totally indifferent church practice. But compare that, though, to this church tradition practice, 
whether or not the pastor will chant or sing or just simply speak. That is an adiaphora, neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. But it isn't something that is just unimportant and doesn't matter. It actually does make a difference in worship. And there are even theological factors at play in how the voice interacts with the words, the music, to aid in memory. So it's certainly not indifferent, unimportant, but it is, though, neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. So that's my take on the word adiaphora. It can kind of sometimes be a word that loses its meaning with so much use, kind of like the words freedom or racism or love. After a while, people use it in so many different ways that you're like, okay, we need to have a reformation of this word. Yeah, one of my wife's favorite phrases that I bring up on this show quite a lot is words mean things, right? And so uh, I like how you highlighted that for us. And also, as you brought in, especially chanting there, I think that connects us right in with where we're going to pick up with the affirmative statements today in paragraph three, affirmative statement number one, and talking about some of those things that we use in our ceremonies and church practices. And so we'll just go ahead and jump right into the affirmative statements here. So this is, again, the epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 10 on church practices. And we read on this show from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, which is available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. This is, again, paragraph three, affirmative statement one of Article 10 of church practices. For settling this controversy, we unanimously believe, teach, and confess that some ceremonies or church practices are neither commanded nor forbidden in God's word, but have been introduced only for the sake of fitting and good order. Such rites are not in and of themselves divine worship. They're not even a part of it. Matthew 15 verse 9 says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Thus far the epitome. All right, so... Pastor Cochrane, go ahead. And what does this mean here when it talks about these ceremonies and the Sunday worship service not being in and of themselves divine worship? I thought if it was in the divine service, it would be divine worship. So what do they mean by this? Yeah, for sure. It can strike us a a little strange. And part of the problem is, again, our English language, how we default in our minds with this word worship to be something that, say, I am doing to show honor to God that to worship, strictly speaking, is to show someone distinct honor. But in the original German, this word in English, worship, is Gottesdienst, the service of the Gott God to man, the service of God to man. And I even checked the original German of this third paragraph, and that is the German word where we read worship, that it's actually Gottesdienst. And so what is true worship, though? The answer is actually found back in the Apology, Article 5, where it says there that to truly worship is to seek the forgiveness of sins. Namely, where God says to seek forgiveness in baptism, the preached word, the absolution from the pastor, uh, the Lord's Supper. That these, what we often call the means of grace, are commanded by God, so they're not adiaphora. But most importantly, though, they're instituted by God as the way he wants to meet us that is then the true worship. But things like chanting or what the the pastor wears are traditions of man that supplement that true worship, the means of grace. And so since paragraph three there brought in the Matthew 15, nine quote, let's, I'd say, go into that a bit more here, where Jesus said, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
This really comes up a few times in the Gospels where Jesus is chastising the traditions of the Pharisees when they try to elevate their own traditions, say even of washing couches, above that of the commandments of God. And it's really important to keep this straight, this distinction between the traditions of man and the commandments of God, that Jesus doesn't condemn the Pharisees for simply having traditions of men, but rather turning those traditions of men into the commands of God and, and staking the forgiveness of sins, that true worship on those traditions. And so that was a, a hot topic with the Pharisees. It was a hot topic with Luther and the Roman Catholics how they had invented a whole host of new traditions of men, fasting on Fridays, celibacy, taking the waters of baptism and using it for other purposes. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on from the time of the Reformation, how many just random traditions of men that they had elevated, they passed off to the people as commands of God. And it's important to remember in the time of the Reformation, a lot of people were illiterate, so they didn't have the quite easy ability to load up Bible Gateway and see is what I'm being told actually what God has revealed. So then by the, the time of the Formula Concord back in 1580, there's a, a new group, though, that's coming, kind of going off the other side of the ditch in this, and that's the, the Sacramentarians or the Reformed. And they established a different principle with this that if it is a tradition of man, don't do it. Or rather, if God didn't command it, don't do it. This is often kind of times called the regulative principle. And with this, it's pretty easy to undermine this pretty quickly. It's a bit unrealistic. I mean, think, take this example, how God doesn't command us to wear shoes when we have a worship service, but we still do wear shoes when we go into the worship space for the sake of good order and quite frankly, to not have stinky feet. <laughs> so this whole commandment of God, yeah, we want to keep it, but we, we have a bit of a, of a different principle, though. And I think you guys were, were talking about it a little bit last week, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and as you were bringing this up, what's running through my mind is you bring in the Pharisees, and there's just really nothing new under the sun, right? By the time of the Reformation comes around, we're back to the same thing that Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees and really all of the religious leaders of Jesus's day that, you know, they take these things that are maybe in and of themselves good. I like the example, a very simple example that you use in terms of wearing shoes in church. That's a good thing for a whole lot of reasons, right? But when we start mingling it with our salvation, now it's become something more. And so Pastor Herkamp and I were talking about this specifically with a lot of these practices that are good. They're very beneficial for teaching. And I even shared how in my own pastoral practice and in my congregations, a lot of these sorts of things I retain and have even kind of restored and brought back that at other times were maybe set aside for, for very good reasons at those times. But as we have them in the church, that we keep our understanding of What's their purpose and their place? And so Pastor Herkamp and I were talking last week. I kind of brought in there what is found in Augsburg Confession, Article 15, that we can keep the traditions that can be kept without sin. And so what would you say is kind of the line there, if you will, about when does it become a matter of, you know, can this be kept without sin? Or when does it cross over and become really a matter of confession for us and say, hey, people are being led astray here, and we need to evaluate its place within our God-esteen start, divine service, God serving us with forgiveness, life, and salvation. Yeah, we definitely want to 
keep in mind that the whole gospel and then the, the worship that we even still have today, so much of it comes just simply from Jesus and the apostles handing it down, traditioning it, literally handing over in the Greek is what tradition is. And they pass these things down to us and we receive them with joy. But we can sometimes have an arrogance in, in every generation for that which came before us and think that we can do better. When in fact, God would have us just simply keep repeating the gospel, keep doing the ceremonies that lift up the gospel. But knowing that we're in the sinful flesh, we do have innovations that come into our worship that we may not realize it at first, but ultimately we find that they do indeed obscure the gospel. And so the church is in constant need of reformation and evaluating, are our audiophora that which exalts the gospel, or is it something that's completely neutral, or is it something which even obscures the gospel? And even with, I mean, it's important to make certain distinctions that even if something is more obscuring of the gospel, we still want to be careful about just getting rid of it, kind of carte blanche, that perhaps it should be omitted, but we got to give special care to the weak in faith and exercise patience to those who themselves might not see how it's an obscuring of the gospel. And so I think it's down here, yep, down there in paragraph five, uh, special care should be taken to exercise patience toward the weak in faith. So it kind of our, our, should be our standard, our default as pastors and people that we try to preserve what we can and perhaps you've heard of, of Chesterton's fence, G.K. Chesterton, the, the British thinker not too long ago, where he said that if you come upon a fence in a road, and I'm paraphrasing probably pretty badly, but if you come upon a fence in the road, you're driving along, and there's no sign up that tells you why this fence is in this road, maybe it just simply says, do not cross. But you know that on the other side of this fence is really where you'd like to go. Well, instead of just simply taking down the fence and just going, it's more prudent to examine, maybe go back into town and ask people why this fence is up. Maybe there might be some World War II landmines just waiting on the other side that they didn't put the right sign for. But you want to explore why a particular tradition is the way it is, where it came about in even church history, before you would want to change it. Should always be our being more careful with our traditions. And so even to the point, Johann Gerhard, the 17th century Lutheran Orthodox great thinker, he listed seven duties of pastors. Now, they're really fantastic, and they help pastors to remain oriented for their office. And the final one takes us a bit by surprise. It's to preserve the traditions of the church, or perhaps even to restore traditions that have been cast away without as much thinking. So that's a, a, some good general rules with this. If I might interrupt for a second here. Sure. I, I wonder your thoughts on this. So you talked about innovations coming into the church and evaluating why historically some of those traditions have come in and maybe evaluating, is it in our best interest and what does it convey in terms of the gospel for this being there, not being there, those sorts of things. I, I've been doing a lot of thinking on this when it comes to what we're facing in our present time in terms of the pandemic. And certainly the church has faced plagues and pandemics in the past and there's a whole lot of things that you can point to that actually were probably really good, namely what we find in terms of science, what we know today in terms of science of the royal metal of the chalice combined with the alcohol of the wine makes for a really good, you know, not transmission of virus and bacteria and those sorts of things that can make us sick. It, it makes for a really good sanitary way to do the Lord's Supper. 
And then it was later innovations with the individual cups and using grape juice and other denominations and things like that, that made that less sanitary. But then to get back to my question, so I've been thinking on this in terms of the innovations that we are introducing into the church at this time, given the understanding of our people, and especially as you highlighted there, considering those who are maybe weak in the faith, and we're not saying that in a mean way, but you know, it can be a stumbling block to some folks to even come receive Christ's body and blood for their forgiveness, life, and salvation. They can believe that, they can have a trust in God, and yet they're just uncertain and unsure because they're in that at-risk category and they don't want to get sick and those sorts of things. And so like one of the practices that I've done here in my dual parish is that as I administer the Lord's Supper now, I'll be doing so with a face mask on. And I hand sanitize my hands and clean my hands quite a bit with high proof alcohol as I go throughout the process and everything like that. And there I'm considering my folks, their safety and those sorts of things. And maybe some of those practices are okay to do forever. But if we ever get to a point in the church where the face masks just don't go away, And all of a sudden it becomes this thing, well, the pastor can't do communion unless he's wearing a face mask because then he doesn't care about his people and he's going to, you know, kill them off or, you know, whatever it becomes in the church. You know, I I can't, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't see what's coming. You know, is that maybe something that fits in under this as well is that we think about and we clearly communicate what it is that we're doing with our practices and why we're doing them maybe for a particular time. And that those sorts of things, as you said, the church always needs reform and that we maybe look years down the road and say, okay, do we really need the face mask anymore <laughs> or something like that? Hopefully it doesn't take years. I don't, I don't want this to go on that long. I don't like wearing a face mask, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah. So I'm actually thinking on this a lot and really this gives us some humility, what we're going through right now with the church traditions that have been handed down to us that we should always examine where particular audiophora have come into the church. Uh, What are the contexts that cause, say for example, grape juice to come in or um, the individual cups to come into the church as these are newer things. And was it particular epidemics that even caused the individual cups in the past? Hint, hint, it's related. (laughs) But I was thinking about this whenever I was giving the Lord's Supper to a uh, shut-in the other day, who's rather older, and so somebody who I definitely want to have a lot of precautions with, with not passing on this virus. Every single one of our ceremonies, our things we do that's not commanded nor forbidden, teach. They confess a particular truth. And it's worth learning. And, And if you're a lay person listening to this, I encourage you that if you ever have a question why do we as a church do what we do in worship that is a question that your pastor would love to hear love to be asked and love to help you your pastor should always be able to explain why we do what we do in the lord's service and so i was thinking about this as i just gave the words of institution and it was at that moment just before giving the body that i went for a little bit of hand sanitizer and then it it kind of dawned on me in that moment that is teaching something, whether we know it or not. And that is that I could be passing off more than merely the medicine of immortality, more than merely the body of Jesus, but I could be passing on germs that even carry the coronavirus. And now I'm not denying that that's true, that actually in the Lord's Supper, as we are on this side of the resurrection, as the bread is still a earthly bread this side of eternity, that there is certainly a chance that coronavirus germs could be on there, but we would say that the will of God is going to cut through even that, that even if you were to catch the coronavirus from 
the body and blood of Jesus on the bread and the wine, that you would, it would be something that would be according to God's will and he would take care of you. But it does diminish what is the main point in that moment, the body and blood for the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation, that perhaps we got to be a little bit more careful when we have all of these masks and things like that, that we're confessing that the Lord's Supper isn't 100% good. And that's my biggest fear with this, um, with all the different practices around the Lord's Supper right now that we're doing, is that we're just simply teaching the people to be a little bit cautious about the Lord's Supper. And that can go a, a number of dangerous ways. And I'm uh, studying right now with my folks, uh, weekly communion is uh, something they've gotten new interest in, actually because of the coronavirus, because we had been celebrating it every other week, but then with the abbreviated services, less than 10, a few people have just simply been coming weekly. And so now we're studying it, and I found that just after the time of the Reformation, it was the 30 years war and a lot of religious warfare circumstances that caused the churches to begin to celebrate it less than weekly. It had been restored to weekly in the time of Luther and the Reformers, but then after that it was warfare that caused them to then not take it as regularly. And it was kind of a slippery slope down there and then four times per year and so forth with pietism. But a lot of our church traditions are circumstantial. So our time today can give us some humility with thinking about traditions that have been just simply handed to us, that we don't have a change for change's sake kind of a mindset, but that we also don't have a, we're never going to consider our ceremonies and what they teach. Do they exalt the gospel or do they obscure the gospel or are they really more neutral? Well, and as you talk about our ceremonies and they teach, I know in the notes that you sent me for preparation for our show today, you had some thoughts on another ceremony that teaches a whole lot, a very central ceremony to us in the Lutheran church, which is baptism. And I really liked some of your thoughts. And so for the benefit of our listeners, I'd like you to go ahead and highlight that for us. What is it about the baptism ceremony that we should consider in these discussions? Yeah, it's a great test case for evaluating our church traditions. So uh, just as a, a kind of a question to you, what part of our baptism liturgy, what part of that is commanded by God? Well, I have one coming up this Saturday. It's the baptism itself. It's the water combined with God's word, right? Exactly. That you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is that command institution of Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is what we're doing and is the giving of the forgiveness of grace, life, and salvation in those waters. But let me ask you, though, is it commanded by God to read Matthew 28, 19, and 20? Specifically, no. Exactly. You don't have to read that command institution of God as to say, you know, kind of in the full verses, of course, you are reading it as you're repeating the words in the baptismal formula, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there is no command to actually read scripture. There's no command even to pray in our worship. And yet this is good. This exalts the gospel. It is practicing what we are taught to do just simply in our day-to-day -day lives. And so those are adiaphora, but they are good adiaphora worth doing. And everything that we do in the baptism service is teaching the congregation, the one being baptized, what is happening in that moment that the one, the candidate, is being baptized. So then let's go into another one of the ceremonies of baptism. What about lighting the light? No. Definitely not commanded by God. The white garment that we do as well, these are neutral ceremonies that carry a symbolic meaning one is receiving the light of Christ in their baptism. They are now 
being moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. The white garment, you are being clothed with Christ. It's got a connection to, to Galatians when you put on Christ in baptism. But they aren't commanded nor forbidden. Well, and I say this is a good test case because whenever Luther inherited the Middle Age, the medieval era ritual of baptism, it was actually full of even more ceremonies, kind of like the light and the garment. For example, the pastor would, or the priest as they call them, would stick his fingers in his mouth, put them into the ears of the candidate, and say, Epepta, which is a simple repetition of Jesus when he did that, when he made a deaf man hear by sticking his fingers in his mouth and sticking his fingers into the ear, giving a little divine wet willy. Uh, so that was then part of the baptism ritual. Well, Luther looked at that and said, hey, we want to keep what can be kept without sin. It is not sin to do this at the repetition, so let's keep it all. We want to be reformers, conservative reformers. We want to show our Roman Catholics that we are, we can be Catholic, small c, so excellent. And he really just said we just need to have it in German, so that's why he published it in 1523. He just simply translated it. But then three years later, in 1526, he recognized that there were so many number of these neutral ceremonies that they actually obscured the main event of the baptism. It, it distracted people. And actually, uh, there's a Norwegian pastor I, I had in seminary who says that this is a problem in the Scandinavian areas where the baptism, they have a, a ceremony where they will hide the real name of a person at the birth, but then wait to reveal the name that the person will have all life long at the baptism. Well, and I should say, it's a symbolic thing in the scriptures because so many people get new names after coming to Christ, after being converted. So Saul to Paul and so forth. Well, what ended up happening, what ends up happening is that the baptism becomes a renaming, or I should say the naming ceremony. People don't come for the sake of the baptizing. They come for the sake of learning what the kid's name is going to be their whole life. So Luther in 1526 then said, let's just get rid of the ephtheptha and some of these more obscure things that are done so that we can have more focus on that which God actually commands. So that's a good example of the principle in the Reformation with Luther. But this is even a great example for Article 10 and what you and Pastor Herkamp discussed last week. The problem when someone says that you have to do an adiaphora in order to be a Christian. Say somebody said you have to do the candle or the white cloth. Well, then it becomes a matter of Christian freedom. Christ died to free us from the slavery to sin, from the punishment of sin, and also then fulfilled the ceremonial and civil laws of the Old Testament. And should anybody say that you have to do something that's particularly not a moral command of God, then we would say, well, no, I'm actually going to do the opposite now is as a confession that I am free in Christ. Well, with baptism, this actually happened the very next century where the Reformed came around and said, you absolutely cannot do what's called the exorcism, uh, which is just simply the line in many baptisms today where it said, depart you unclean spirit and make room for the Holy Spirit. A lot of the Reformed said that that's not good to do and that you, in fact, cannot do it. Well, the 17th century Lutherans took up Formula 10 and declare, well, if you say we can't, well, then now for the sake of the gospel, we will. We, in fact, have to. It's, a, it's kind of a um, paradox that you say we can't. Well, now we're, by even conviction of the scriptures, we have to have this exorcism. Now, people aren't really demanding that today, and so now it's become 
you know, do the exorcism, don't do the exorcism, it doesn't quite matter. But there is a more relatable example today with the baptism ritual. Actually, I'm just going to go ahead and pause you right there because we need to take a break. This is great stuff. I love it. Really thought-provoking points for us to consider in this matter of considering Adiaphora. So we'll pick this up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Hi, this is Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas, host of Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are starting a new series on Sharper Iron that will take us through the Epistle of St. James. It's titled, Wisdom from Above. Reading the Epistle of St. James right after St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans might seem a bit jarring at first. As you hear St. James' words to the church, there may be moments that you'll wonder how this epistle can stand side by side with St. Paul's in Holy Scripture. And at multiple times in the church's history, critics have claimed precisely that, that St. Paul and St. James contradict each other. Our three-week journey through this short epistle will help us to see that this simply isn't the case. St. Paul and St. James don't contradict each other at all. Instead, these two servants of Christ use the same words, words like faith and works, and the same examples, examples such as the patriarch Abraham, to illustrate different yet complementary points about the Christian life. Join us on Sharper Iron the next three weeks to receive from the epistle of St. James the wisdom of Jesus, wisdom that comes from above. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Kurt Cochran. He is the pastor of Faith Lutheran in Tucson, Arizona. And just before the break, you were giving us some very thought-provoking ideas on the baptism, right? The ceremony of baptism, some of the history behind it, and also just considering how this plays into, and I like the wording that you use there, it's kind of a test case for us in this matter on the Formula of Concord, Article 10, as it relates to church practices and the matters of adiaphora or matters of indifference and how that relates to us. And so you were talking just before the break and I apologize, we just needed to take a break, but you were talking us through there how some other traditions started influencing and kind of commanding things, which made us, as I said last week, you know, sometimes when you come and tell us, well, you have to or you can't do, then Lutherans kind of stand their ground a little firmer. And so you were leading us in that discussion as the influence from other denominations came in there. So go ahead and pick up where you left off there. Sure thing. Well, just looking at the mode of baptism, you'll find a great many Protestants in this country who say that, you know, baptism, it's just plain water. It's not saving water. It's just a act that I do in order to tell God how much I love him, how much I believe in him. So they, they kind of poo-poo it as a whole. But then you ask them, okay, well, how do you baptize? They say, well, you have to baptize by immersion, complete dunking. And it's a particular read of the scriptures. They're, I think, misinterpreting the word baptizo in the Greek and so forth. But we're seeing this and saying, well, for one, the Pharisees, with their traditions of man, they baptized couches. Well, they didn't fully immerse the couch whenever they are washing, they're baptizing. 
And really the historical root of a baptizo is to just simply wash with water. And so we say as long as water is doing some application to the baptized, whether it be a sprinkle, whether it be a, a little waterfall over the baby's forehead or whatnot, it doesn't matter. The most important thing is the application of water. But no, the um, Baptists and otherwise would say you have to immerse. Well, now it becomes a matter of confession with Adiaphora in Article 10 here, that if you say I have to immerse, I am absolutely not going to immerse. So that is why you have a great many Lutheran churches today who simply won't immerse. It's for the sake of confession. Even though, really, in the early church, quite frankly, most of the early church was baptizing by immersion. And so at some point in time, if the Protestant church kind of changed their tune and said no longer have to immerse, then we might actually go back to immersing. So that's a, a good example of how to apply this. Unless we kind of are taking this from our own minds or wise in our own eyes, really what we're doing is applying Paul and Galatians as a whole, for freedom Christ has set you free, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery, Paul says, but particularly to the Judaizing Christians, those who came out of Judaism, but saying that you still have to be circumcised in order to be right with God. But Paul says, absolutely not. It has been fulfilled. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled. So if you're going to say that I have to be circumcised, I am going to refuse. And this happened with two examples. Um, well, for one example with Titus is a Greek name, Titus. His parents were Greek. He's converted to Christianity. He's uncircumcised. And it was the Galatians that were saying, Paul, Titus has to be circumcised. But Paul says, well, if you're saying in such a hard-hearted way, he has to be circumcised, I'm absolutely not going to circumcise him. But then a fascinating thing happens where we meet Timothy, the other companion of Paul, who was a son of a Jewish mother, but also a son of a Greek father. He too was uncircumcised, heard the gospel, converted to Christianity. And then where Timothy was going, he was going to go and be a missionary to Jews. But they were Jews who were weaker in the faith, who were humbly learning about how Jesus fulfilled the law. So in order to not be a stumbling block to them, Paul had Timothy circumcised. So it's an amazing thing that Adiaphora is really contextual that Titus keeps his foreskin for the sake of the gospel, and Timothy loses his foreskin for the sake of the gospel. And the, there are a couple more examples in this as well, but I know you got another week on Adiaphora, so perhaps you can touch on that, that next week, because we do want to get through the different affirmative statements here. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and pick up then with paragraph five. We're going to talk about paragraph four in just a bit, but we're going to come back to that. And so we're skipping over here. It's not typical on the show, but I think that this ties in here. So paragraph five, affirmative statement three says this, nevertheless, all frivolity and offense should be avoided in this matter. Special care should be taken to exercise patience toward the weak in faith. And they cite 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9 and Romans 14 verse 13, thus far the epitome. So how does that then tie in with what you were talking about here in our Christian freedom and doing things, not doing things and, and considering the weak? How should we consider the weak in this matter, according to Affirmative Statement 3 and Paragraph 5 here? Well, everybody can probably remember a time in their Christian life where they were just simply more ignorant, not as aware of historic Christian teaching, biblical teaching. And you probably remember many people who were patient with you. As you were young and weak, they were giving you the milk of the gospel, waiting for the time to provide you then the meat. So that's all over the scriptures. Christ is having us bear with the weak, be patient with those who are growing. And so when it comes to whether to um, wear a chasuble or 
whether to have red wine or white wine, these adiaphora matters, if there is in fact practices that are better, not right, but better than another, but people are still coming around, well, then you have a particular time of patience. And this was how it was really taught in, to me in seminary. They said, really, make no change without teaching enough. Make sure it's reasonable for good order and for catechesis, that what this ceremony is teaching the people. But do what you can to avoid offense. And especially avoid frivolity is a fascinating expression there. We'll come back to that in a sec. But that doesn't mean that all offense will be avoided, since sometimes people will simply just kick against what is good. But we at least strive to lower offense with our, our main tool as pastors, teaching the Word of God. And so kind of one mark of faith for a layperson, and how I would encourage you if you're a layperson listening to this, is my pastor teaching me from the scriptures, either while making a change or before making a change? Is it something that's a reasonable argument from the scriptures and not something that's genuinely new, genuinely innovative? Well, God in Hebrews 13, 17 says that laity really have a joy and a privilege to submit to the leadership of the pastor in the addition or subtraction of any given adiaphora only so long as the pastor is being guided by clear scriptures that the pastor cares for you. The pastor loves you. And so he's wanting to not offend you if he can. But he's also wanting to teach you and institute better practices that have been introduced into the church in prior years that were perhaps unhelpful and wanting to help you grow in them. So work with your pastors is my general encouragement. And then let's go to this frivolity expression. Pastor Smith, how would you define frivolity? Well, I was thinking about this as you were talking there, too. One of the things that I was taught and that I've often used in this sort of idea is, you know, do nothing strange in the church pastor is basically the breakdown of what I was told. And, and, and it's because it's related to this word frivolity that you're talking about, that if it's strange, if it's something that is different than what the church has always done, then it makes it less than serious and it makes it kind of just, you know, why is this here and why are we doing this? I'm so out of place by this. That, that's kind of the idea that I get with things that are frivolous, frivolity. Right. And, and a simple definition from Google on frivolity is lack of seriousness. And so we want to strive for reverence that we're purposeful with what we do in worship. And there, this kind of pushes against the movements that we've had recent years, recent decades towards making worship kind of more casual or come as you are. Now we, we're confident in going into the Holy of Holies, but we're going into the Holy of Holies. We want to come in with a particular joyful reverence, just say as if you were to in, be invited into uh, the White House to have an audience with the president. You wouldn't just come in your PJs with frivolity, but you would say, hey, this is a great thing. I'm going forward confidently because I'm being invited. Well, you're being invited into the presence of the King of Kings you recognize he's the king of kings, that there should be some reverence there as well. So then as we consider change to some ceremonies and, and those sorts of things, again, I think a good guiding directive is do nothing strange and you're on safe ground. But we can certainly evaluate and consider changes, again, for particular circumstances. But you know, we need to examine and consider all of those things. And are we giving offense to the weak in faith and those sorts of things as well? But I think this brings us back then to paragraph four and affirmative statement two, which does talk about this. And so then I'll throw this over to you after I read it here. So again, from the Formula of Concord, Article 10, paragraph four, affirmative statement two, 
We believe, teach, and confess that the community of God, the churches of God, in every place, in every land, and at every time according to its circumstances, has the power to change such worship ceremonies in a way that may be most useful and edifying to the community of God, the churches of God. And then, of course, it goes into affirmative statement three there, which we just talked about avoiding frivolity and so forth. But then how do these connect together in terms of what should we evaluate when we're considering change to worship ceremonies? And what is the freedom that we have in that change? Well, one thing that's worth noting is who knows whether or not somebody takes offense at a ceremony that is being proposed even to be changed? Well, it's the individual heart of the person is how they're reacting to something is whether or not you as a layperson know whether offense is being taken. But if you don't confess that, don't communicate that uh, offense to your pastor, then he can't evaluate how to go about uh, a particular change. But really, so let's go back into the the, um, paragraph four there, where it says the power to change the community of God has the power of change for worship ceremonies in a way that be most useful and edifying to the community of God. That word edifying is important because if a pastor were to propose a change, push a change that is being given, there's a lot of offense being taken to it. The people are communicating their hesitancy and there just perhaps simply hasn't been enough teaching. Well, then it's not edifying if the pastor were to continue on with that change. That being said, if there's a whole lot of teaching and there's a smaller handful, but still a couple people who are who are pushing against, but for a large part, most of the church has come around and said, this is now edifying if we have this different ceremony. Then at that point in time, the church of God can change it, avoiding offense as much as possible. And frivolity, of course, special care should be taken to exercise patience toward the weak in faith. And pastors often need to hear this repeated over and over again because we're prone to the opposite of not having such patience. So that's kind of, I'd say, how they all go together. One thing, especially because I I wanted to make sure I squeeze this in before we ran out of time today, is that Matthew Harrison, President Harrison, put out an essay. I think he first wrote it like back in 2002, entitled Luther, the Confessions and Confessors on Liturgical Freedom and Uniformity. And I'd really say that if you've got an interest in the things that we've been speaking about today, go and find that essay. Matthew Harrison, it's actually, you can, it's been reprinted in recent years in the opening pages of the CPH translation of Chemnitz's Church Order, but it's nonetheless, you can probably find it otherwise. And that's really eye-opening to see how Martin Chemnitz, one of the authors of this formula of Concord, practiced what they preached. And everybody who is operating with this understanding that churches of God have the power to change such worship ceremonies. Well, they also didn't, quite frankly, do a lot of changing. They, they kept as the, the old tradition, keep it if you can without sin. But also they, they had a much more circuit-oriented way of church that I think could be recovered in our Missouri Synod to our great benefit, where they considered, say, I'm in Tucson, Arizona, where we've got churches of about 12 in a metropolitan. We're not too far driving distance away from each other. If we were kind of transported back to the 16th century, we would really consider all of our congregations in our circuit to kind of be one church where they would come together for the committees and things like that. But that you could go from one church to another church and expect to have the exact same ceremonies. And Luther, as Harrison brings out in this essay, would say that that is wonderful because it keeps confusion from being manifested amongst the people 
that they know what they're going to get, and they know that they're going to get the gospel preached. We strive for unity foremost with doctrine, but never to the detriment of the goal of uniformity of worship. Uniformity of worship is, say, the second highest goal next to the unity of doctrine and belief. And so, like I said, I, I highly encourage the listeners to check that essay out. It's eye-opening for how the authors of the formula practice these principles here in the affirmative statements. Well, and I think what you're highlighting there, too, is also really instructive for us as we consider change in the church and things like that, is that as much as we affirm the ability for considering of your local customs, your people in the local place, and ministry there, that you can have certain change, there's also great benefit in restraining our freedom for the sake of the gospel, especially in our time and age when we're a lot more mobile as a culture. And I like how you said there that you know you should be able to walk into any LCMS church and know what you're going to receive there. That's a real mark of unity. It's something that McDonald's and Starbucks and a lot of other really big businesses know and the church has known and certainly should hold on to. But for some reason, we tend to let go in our day and age. I tend to talk about this a lot that actually uh, for, for a period of my time in life, I worked for Starbucks and they were very intentional there that they wanted the experience of the customer, no matter where they were, even if they were in a foreign country, that they knew what they were going to get at Starbucks. So much so that even the water was filtered out and distilled so that it would give the same taste and that you could walk in and know how to function. And they were also so intentional on this that though I had a primary place that I worked at, they would purposely come in and evaluate how I'm working to make sure it's within their standards. But also that they would also purposely move me to other stores from time to time and have me work there among people that I wasn't familiar working with just so that it would maintain this standard of all of their employees are doing things the same way, which is of the benefit to the customer and the benefit of the company. And this is nothing new with Starbucks. It's just what I experienced there. Again, McDonald's and a lot of other businesses know this benefit as well. And I really do think that it has been in the church, but it's something that we have lost. And it's because we want to promote this ability for our individual circumstances to consider that and introduce change and do things that are unique to our circumstance. But it doesn't actually promote unity especially as people move around from place to place or travel and visit other churches, that I walk into an LCMS church and I don't even know how to worship because they've changed so much and using such weird ceremonies that I don't even feel comfortable. And what happens in a business like a Starbucks when that happens? Well, I'm going to turn around and walk out if I feel uncomfortable yeah. and I don't know how to order and I don't know the lingo and those sorts of things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think about that tying into all of this conversation as well? Right. And, and there's always, we want to strive to remain on the horse. We don't want to fall off one side or the other. We want to be not going to the one ditch or another. Silicaribdis, sorry, I go off on all those. But we are creatures of habit. We don't want to become idolaters of comfort, though. So that's kind of one way you can fall off on the side of the horse, that we only strive for comfort. But at the same time, we do recognize that there is a rest that can occur whenever you are doing something that you're used to, that you're familiar with, that there's repetition. Uh, repetition is the mother of learning. That if you are a piano player or an organ player, what have you, any really instrument, you know that the more you practice the same piece of music over and over and over again, that when it comes time to perform it, that you're not stressing about it. You're resting in the music. It allows your brain to be freed because you know it so well. That's more than mere comfort, kind of the comfort that we would have on our couches while watching football, but is instead a divine even rest. 
And so there is a joy in having uniform worship when it can be achieved, not to the sacrifice of the unity of doctrine, which is what they do in Anglican communions, for example, but that it is something to be to be strived for. And, and there's a grain of truth, without a doubt, to the fact that all of our companies such strive for uniformity with one another. I love that. I, I hadn't considered that before. It's it's spot on because we are indeed creatures of habit. And it's certainly something that we can fall off on either side of the horse as well, too, in just terms of our practice, because you can have the the side of the church that wants what we might call a more contemporary worship style and those sorts of things, which we can talk about another time. But even on the more liturgical, you know, high church liturgy kind of style as well, that we can tend to do the same thing on both sides, where we want to introduce all of these things that we think are very central to our style of worship, that it actually negates the unity that we have. And so I think it was brought up by Pastor Herkamp on the show last week, and I'll bring it up again. If we would all just do what's in the hymnal, that would be really great. That, there would be great <laughs> unity in there on either side. And I think that that's a good place for us to find our unity centered on the gospel always through it all, which also then brings us into, I need to get in, we got about five minutes left here, but paragraph six, affirmative statement four, it's a little long, but is a really important consideration in all of this too, that during a time of persecution, so I'll let you launch into this after I read it here. We believe, teach, and confess that during a time of persecution, when a plain and steadfast confession is required of us, we should not yield to the enemies in such matters of Adiaphora. For the apostle has written in Galatians 5 verse 1, For freedom Christ hath set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He also writes in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Also note Galatians 2 verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. For in such a case, it is no longer a question about Adiaphora, but it considers the truth of the gospel, preserving Christian liberty and sanctioning opening idolatry. It also concerns the prevention of offense to the weak in faith. In such a case, we have nothing to concede. We should plainly confess and endure what God sends because of that confession and whatever he allows the enemies of his word to inflict on us. Thus far, the epitome. All right, so I think this begins to bring this all together then. So when is it no longer a question of Adiaphora and becomes a matter of confession in a time of persecution, Pastor Cochran? Yeah, so whenever I was teaching this about oh, a half a year ago, I, I said, look, this was the issue whenever this formula was being put together because of church and state being so commingled and the state Charles V was basically dictating their audiophora. And so at the time, it was kind of hard for me to see how we really could apply this in our day and age today. I would say that if you ever have anybody who's a brother or sister in Christ in your congregation who's saying, in order to be a Christian, you have to wear a chasuble. You have to do this or do that. Then at that point in time, you'd say, well, there's the, the element in which how much are you willing to enforce that have to? If you're going to make my life a little bit miserable by that, well, that's kind of persecution. In which case, well, of course, even if there wasn't persecution, you'd still say, I don't have to. I'm going to keep my Christian freedom here, where indeed the law, the moral law that we strive for is that which is in the scripture. Anything in addition that's a man-made tradition that you're going to make into a doctrine then we would push against for the sake of Christian liberty. That being said, though, with this pandemic, we now see kind of a new commingling of church and state that can bring this now back to bear. It's not quite as, as muddied because the thing that the state has really dictated 
that Christians really can't do in select jurisdictions is not gather for worship, which isn't even an adiaphora. That's completely commanded by God. God commands us to gather for worship. We would submit perhaps for a time out of love for neighbor with the fifth commandment to not gather for worship as we did at Faith in Tucson for a few weeks. Thankfully, Arizona gave us quite a bit of religious liberty. But that's a matter of confession then as to say, especially when it becomes unreasonable, that no, our Christian freedom ought to be preserved. You can't dictate this thing to us. But take, for example, though, if the state were to say, either because of this pandemic or a future pandemic, Christian churches, you can no longer administer using the chalice. And it's now punishable by law. And we know that they would be coming from a non-Christian perspective and whatnot. And so we would try and reason with our rulers, our authorities. But if push come to shove, at the end of the day, we say, absolutely not. We cannot bow down to that command, because if you are going to command something that is not commanded in Scripture, and even put a bit of a penalty of the sword behind it, we will stand firm in the true faith, not submit again to a yoke of slavery, and endure whatever persecution would come for the sake of the gospel. And it would indeed be a great witness to to many in the, in the world that uh, we trust so highly in God, that he would preserve and provide for us, protect us, or even usher us into the life of the world to come in a time of persecution. But even these adiaphora, which again is not merely indifferent, unimportant matters, this is how we would go about it. So then on the other side, we have paragraph seven, affirmative statement five, and you'll only have one minute response for this, and then we'll have to wrap up the show. But let me go ahead and read it, because this also talks about condemning one another within the church. So paragraph seven, we believe, teach, and confess also that no church should condemn another because one has less or more outward ceremonies than the other, for those are not commanded by God. This is true as long as they have unity with one another in the doctrine and in all its articles and in the right use of the holy sacraments. This practice follows the well-known saying, disagreement in fasting does not destroy agreement in faith. All right, one minute on that with your parting thoughts there, Pastor Cochran. Excellent. Well, the truth of the matter is that we get in the Lutheran Church that we wish others' denominations would also follow along, is that if you are confessing the same truth from the scriptures, what's going to follow is practicing that same truth. Unity in doctrine follows into or leads into uniformity in practice. And that if there is natural uniformity differences, then more than likely it's exposing a difference of doctrinal belief in one congregation to another. That being said, though, that's kind of the one side of the, not even a ditch, that's the middle. But one side of the ditch is to say that something that is more, oh, not quite, how important, I might say, or catechetical that one congregation does different than another, that nobody should say, well, then therefore we either have some division between us or that one congregation's wrong. At which point in say we say disagreement in fasting does not destroy agreement in faith. Uh, that's actually, I'm telling you, you said one minute, I'm going to go fast if I can, that the mother of Augustine, that's right, the mother of Augustine went traveling to Rome and what she found there was a different fasting tradition of the church in Rome. And she was scandalized by this. And so she went back to, I believe it was Ambrose, and said, Ambrose, how come they have a different fasting tradition in Rome? At which point in time, Ambrose lovingly said to the mother of Augustine that, well, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Disagreement in fasting does not destroy agreement in faith. 
And so whenever our congregation was considering the chasuble and the beauty that that adds to the service, the question was, do you wear the chasuble for the whole service or do you just for the service of the sacrament? One of those tomato tomato kind of differences in our history. And I said, well, we've got another sister church who does it for the second half of the service, the service of the sacrament. So why don't we just simply do it the way they do it so that we can strive for uniformity? So that's a way that we can try and stay on the straight and narrow. That is a great thought, a great principle for considering our church practices centered on uniformity in the confession of the gospel and our practices that confess the gospel. Thank you, Pastor Kirk Cochran, for joining us for Concord Matters today, confessing for us the clear biblical teaching with a lot of thought-provoking examples of how we can rightly consider our church practices according to Article 10 of the Epitome of the Formula of Concord. And thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.